Hi, I'm Moon Unit Zappa, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcasts. Pantheon Podcasts presents, from Hollywood, California, The Devil's Music with Pleasant Gaiman. You are invited to join the Hollywood princess as she explores her lifelong pursuits in the occult, sex, love, and that sinful rock and roll. Ladies and gentlemen, step into the dark parlor of Pleasant Gaiman as she brings you the devil's music. Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman. Welcome to the devil's music, a Pantheon podcast where rock and roll meets the occult. For those of you that don't know me, I do a lot of stuff. I'm a dancer, actor, tarot reader, and a best-selling author with eight books out. I got one on the way, too. Look for my new memoir, Rock and Roll Witch, on Punk Hostage Press. You might have seen me acting or dancing in music videos, feature films, and documentaries. In fact, look for me in the new Go-Go stock. To find out more about me or to book a tarot reading, please go to pleasantgaiman.com or check out my Instagram, Princess of Hollywood. All one word, baby. I post there a lot. I'm really happy to be part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Everyone at Pantheon tells stories about the music we love so much. There's like 50 podcasts. Find them all on Pantheon, Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeartRadio.com, Pandora, anywhere you get your favorite podcast fix. Head on over to PantheonPodcast.com and share a show with a friend. Or I'll put a spell on you, baby. If you're going to San Francisco Hi, this is Pleasant Gaiman, and you're listening to the Devil's Music Podcast. Today, my guest is so illustrious and so fascinating. I don't even know how to describe her. When I first met her during the early punk scene in um, in the late 70s in Los Angeles, I th- I was struck by her beauty. She looks like an English rose. She's got the cackle of a witch. She's got the wit of Truman Capote. And she's been in every damn countercultural revolutionary moment that you could imagine from the 60s until currently, um, including but not limited to living in a commune in Haight-Ashbury, living in the East Village and being part of the Warhol scene, being part of the early CBGBs and avant-garde theater and drag scene. She was here in LA, as I said, in the late 70s punk scene and was in a band called Interpol after that. She's a visual artist. She's a performance artist. She's a photographer, an actor, a clothing maker, a costume maker. She's made costumes for the Rolling Stones, for Diana Ross. I mean, I don't even know how we're going to cram this all into one podcast, but I definitely am still is like awestruck by her today, like almost 50 years later, as I was the moment I met her as, as a teenager. Please welcome the illustrious, amazing Fayette Hauser. Hello. Hi, babe. <laughs> oh, darling. <laughs> After that intro, I, I think I should just say, well, goodbye. <laughs> and just I mean, leave it at that. Uh, no, your stories are, I mean, your stories are priceless gems and I can't wait to hear them. Honestly, I was, I was so in awe of you and so intimidated, but not in a bad way by you. I just like, I had to, I had to like practically keep my chin like strapped to my face because of 
all the stuff I knew about you and all the cool things you've always been doing. So um, I don't know. Let's just, you know, let, let's just start. Like start from the beginning right. and I'll, I'll interrupt and ask you questions. And so okay. will my phone interrupt for texts apparently. Right. <laughs> um, well, I grew up with the counterculture movement. I mean, I was born at the right time for all that cultural stuff. And um, we lived in New Jersey and it was 50 miles outside of Manhattan. And so even when I was in high school, I couldn't wait to get out of New Jersey, please. And I was in Catholic high school, if you can imagine. So yeah, busting out was definitely my aim. And so I started going on the bus into Manhattan to go to Pratt Institute, had a Saturday art class for high schoolers. And so I went there early in the morning and it was okay. And I went there for a few months. But then after the class, I would go into Manhattan and roam around and look for stuff. And then after a few months, I just ditched the class altogether and just went to Manhattan. And I would look for uh, all week long. I would comb through the, the Daily News, which had a great section of what was happening. And also the Sunday Times. I would just pour over it. And um, so then clock what was I, I was going to go to the following all these great art galleries, all the, the 60s photographers. And um, it was just fantastic. There were so many great openings, plus the designers. I mean, Betsy, Betsy Johnson had Nini, Binky, and something. Oh, yeah, Betsy, Betsy Binky and Nini. Yeah, yeah, it was on Greenwich Avenue. And there was another store called, uh, um, and, oh, it, it had only black and white clothes. Um, it was fantastic. I couldn't, I, I, that was in the West village. So, so I would roam around the city all day and then come back at midnight and my parents, what, what did you do? I'd say, oh, nothing, you know, but, and I also would go to the, all the modern films that were playing, like, um, that, that theater that's in taxi driver is the, um, what's it called? The, Oh, Variety Arts. It was the Variety Arts Theater, and it was off 14th Street in the east side, and that's where Jack Smith first started showing films, and Stan Brackage, and it was all those guys would show films, and it was a porno theater, but then they would show the films on Saturdays or something, and so I would go there, and uh, when Jack Smith, you know, and at the time I was dressing, I, I wanted to be a beatnik, you know, so I had long hair and bangs. I mean, you know, like Juliet Greco image with a turtleneck, you know, I was into that. So I would go there and I was thinking I was way cool. And, and uh, so Jack Smith showed, I, I guess it was Flaming Creatures. I don't really remember, you know, it was so all of a piece. And afterwards he was standing in the back where they always stood in the back, you know. So I went up to him and he had, it. he was such a beatnik. He was so, you know, he would dress like these different things, but he had these very cool glasses on and, and, and a, a mustache and a goatee. He was like the quintessential beatnik looking guy, very tall. And so I went up to him and, and you know, I, I said, oh, I love your film. And I tried to say the most esoteric thing I could to impress him that, that I was, you know, an intellectual. And so he didn't say anything but he wrote on a piece of paper and then he folded it and put it in my hand. And it was his address, his loft downtown. <laughs> and it said, you know, Sunday, 2 PM or something like that. And I was just, Oh my God, I'm going to go see Jack Smith. Oh my God. So uh, for that, I borrowed the family car and drove into Manhattan and downtown was at that point, nobody, there was no Soho certainly no Tribeca, you know, it was below Houston Street, kind of West Village, but, but down there it was nothing but factories. And so it was empty, empty when I went there and I parked the car and I go into this loft building and had to maneuver the, you know, freight elevator. And I go up there to Jack Smith's loft and there's no Jack Smith. Uh, the doors open and it's an enormous floor through and it was very, the windows were really dirty. So it filtered the light and the light came in very low and misty. And I had to stand there to see what, and 
when I could see the entire floor was covered in little Christmas trees. And there was a maze to go through the Christmas trees. And at every turn, there would be, you know, Jack was a speed freak, meanwhile. So, and an acid head. He took acid and speed every day. Um, so he would make these little uh, vignettes at every turn. There would be doll heads and, you know, sticks and um, all kinds of stuff from the trash in New York, which was, of course, fabulous. So I, I went all through this maze and this dim light all the way through the entire loft. It went all, I must have taken me an hour because I was so fascinated. Then at the end, there was a table and a figure on the table. And I, I went over there and it was Jack Smith lying on the table and he had his, his arms folded on his chest and he had like a pharaoh hat on. And a, a, it was like a pharaoh on a tomb. And he was just laying there the entire time. And I couldn't believe it. I was so impressed. I was just wildly impressed. And I didn't say a word. I just looked at him and bowed and turned around and went back through the maze and went down to the street and was blown away because I thought, he did a performance just for me. You know, I was like 17, maybe. Oh, my God, it was very uh, impressive. So... You know, I mean, I was always heading in that direction because that was all I wanted to do. It was fabulous. So who wouldn't? You know what I mean? That was it. Um, so then, I don't know. I was in, in school, in art school in Boston. I went to BU. Um, but I was always, we were going to New York on the weekends all the time. And my brother lived in New York. So uh, I would go in for the weekend and stay at his place. And we would go to the discotheques. And that was a fabulous scene. But you know, I want to get to San Francisco. So I was in New York after school. Uh, after I graduated, I was in New York for a year. So I was in New York in 67. And that was the summer of love. So I thought, well, it's not happening in San Francisco anymore, because the summer of love is over. So, <laughs> right. So I thought, well, I'll go to Paris. But this friend of mine from art school, said, oh, come, come to Colorado. We're going to do this, like, uh, we're going to put up an art studio in a barn in Aspen, Colorado. So why don't you come? So I thought, well, okay, before I, I head off to France, I'll, I'll see the West. <laughs> so, so I went off to Aspen in the summer of 68. And the art studio was too much like school and I wanted to be in the woods and paint in the woods, you know, do the whole thing. So I set up a tent. It was far out of town. It was down an embankment next to a creek. It was in the middle of the woods. So I lived in a tent in the woods. And then, but Aspen at the time was a hippie enclave. So you would go into town every few days. I would hitchhike into the town and, uh, all the hippies would congregate around the town center. Aspen was light years different from the way it is now. There were no, there was nothing fancy there at all. It was really, it was like an old West mining town. It was a ski resort, but it was funky. Uh, and there was a big brick hotel that was like a bunkhouse. And that's where the hippies would stay if they didn't live in their truck. So, I was picked up hitchhiking by Nancy Gurley. And uh, after I met her, I just moved into the town because she was the most impressive. I'd never met a woman like her that was, she to me was the most modern forward vision of the future woman that I'd ever met. So I, I just, and she talked, told stories. She was this incredible storyteller. So she told me everything that was going on in San Francisco, just completely illustrated the scene, all the people, what it was like. It was incredible. Um, even then I wished I'd had a tape recorder because, but anyway, it was like Hate Street 101, the, you know, from coming from, from Nancy Gurley. So then, you know, I, I would have like guys would come down the embankment and hang out in my tent, you know, this kind of thing. So one guy towards the end, there was this one guy who was from Salt Lake City. And Nancy and this guy named Michael and her her boy, Ongo Ishii, were, 
in a panel truck. And that's what I was picked up in a panel truck. And it was so tripped out on the inside of the panel truck. It was covered in velvets and lace hanging. And, and the dashboard had all these uh, animal skulls, bird skulls, crystals. I mean, the whole thing was incredible. And so I, I said to this guy, go get a panel truck <laughs> and come pick me up and we're going to go to San Francisco. And he did, you know, he went and got a panel truck in, and it was a, it had been a flower truck. So it was painted like melon orange and it had one porthole window. It was just perfect. It looked like a cantaloupe going down the road. <laughs> it was so cool. Yeah. So I did the same thing. You know, I tripped it out. We put a mattress in the back. I got velvets and everything. And I remember I hung this one old piece of velvet and then we had candles and I had a candle underneath it and the thing caught fire and the two of us were in the truck, which is like the sexiest thing is those panel trucks, way more sexy than a van. But so the bottom of this thing catches fire and the two of us were just like, oh my God. But then it was like, you know, magician's fire or something. The thing was so old that it just went poof and it disappeared. <laughs> Because <laughs> it just like turned to, to ash in a flash, you know, because it was already, you know, like a Victorian thing. It was too much. I'll never forget that. Oh, my God. Okay, so we're going to take a little musical break now and then start talking about Hate Ashbury and um, the Cockettes and uh, like acid, acid taken in San Francisco. <laughs> Telling telling her modern Dorothy Gale story of <laughs> Okay. All right. Okay. Yes. Cut to San Francisco. And I of course I didn't go to France. I never went back to New York. I mean, once I got there, the scene was so intense. It was just incredible. Um and I didn't want to leave at all. And Nancy uh, when I got there, I found Nancy right away. And uh, she took me to this house on 83 Noe Street, which is in the DuBose Triangle. And it was just the most unassuming little Victorian. But inside, it was so tripped out. It was beautiful. Uh, this woman named Paula lived there and also Patty Cakes. And Patty Cakes was, um, you know, Nancy was a member of the family dog, a core, an original member of the family dog. And that's the most pivotal history. The seminal history of the hate is the story of the family dog. Um, because they came in the 50s. They were all from Detroit. And they came to North Beach in the 50s. And then as their scene grew, they moved into the hate. As the music scene grew, they all moved into the hate. Um, so the family dog was they were older, like Nancy was 30 at the time. And so they were considered the initial, the original tribe. So, and they were the elders. Everyone admired them. If they went down the street, you were just in awe if you saw them or, you know, so, I mean, she put me right into the nexus. It was brilliant. So, um, so I moved in with Patty Cakes and Paula and Patty Cakes, she was like Nancy's spiritual daughter. And she was also a groupie. She was absolutely gorgeous. She was like a brunette Marilyn Monroe. She had the most beautiful long legs and just gorgeous. And she was a groupie with Jimi Hendrix. She would, you know, he would send for her. So, and Paula was the dope dealer for the family dog. So <laughs> Paula also was into the what antique. Could you find it? <laughs> what? 
<laughs> I said, what could be finer? Groupies. What and could groupies? be better? Yeah. Where where better could I land? Really? <laughs> I mean, honestly, I mean, when I okay, so so this would be how we would spend the day. So Paula had an old Packard, like a 30s Packard, and it was like cafe au lait, uh, two-tone beige and, and brown, you know, it was just beautiful. And uh, her husband, she had a husband named Arthur, who had been uh, a professor, I think at either in Oakland or Berkeley or something, but he had gotten so far out on acid that he was just like, you know, Arthur would drive the car. Oh, and he didn't speak at all. So, so Arthur would drive the car and we would go on the dope run in the morning or in, late afternoon i'm sure do you mean weed or are you talking about like heroin or, or what everything anything okay. and everything right. yeah. okay i just wanted to clarify for oh, whatever you know it was like really a menu. Call it dope anymore. <laughs> oh no yeah we dope was everything you know yeah if it, okay yeah yeah yeah, hash, yeah there would be a menu and <laughs> this kind of thing and roses <laughs> we would have to get roses incense it was it was like an errand for the dope table so, um, so Patty Cakes had a polar bear cape that Jimi Hendrix had given her. And so she would put the polar bear cape on the back of the Packard and the two of us would sit in the back and we would go around town collecting stuff, get back to the house and all the family dog people would come over and hang out in the kitchen. And they had their own magician named Martoon. Like and witchcraft was, magician or Siegfried and Roy magician? Serious? No, every the, the occult was an enormous movement. Yeah, yeah. Okay, right. just make, just no, make so Martin was a, a for real magician. He was a painter as well, but he was in. They were everybody was into Aleister Crowley, God knows, and the Order of the Golden Dawn. Yeah, and uh, Blavatsky. They were all into those things. Everyone was reading those books. You know, it was that intense because when people took acid or any of the psychedelics. Um, after you took a trip that put you so far out, made you so aware, then you studied, you wanted to study. So a lot of people were carrying around books. Everybody had a library. Um, people were so creative. It was intense in that way. Nobody, there was no chit chat like, you know, oh, did you feed the dog? Nobody talked like that. It was all very high level intellectual esoteric conversation going on. So their magician, Martun, and he loved women. So he would sit at there was a big round table in the kitchen. Everybody hung out in the kitchen. And he would sit at the chair and he'd go, come on, Fayette, sit on my lap. And I'm going to get you off on this drug today. <laughs> so every, all week, the first week that I was there, I did every drug that was in the city at the time. And I thought, I am such a lucky girl. <laughs> that's that's what I felt like in the punk scene. <laughs> oh, because you, yeah, you fell into the very place you wanted to be. Yeah, yeah exactly. right. So um, I stayed there. You know, we moved around so much. I stayed there. Uh, I don't remember whether it was months, some months, but then there was. How did you how did you meet the people and how did the cockheads start? Oh, okay. So that came later. Okay, so we'll jump to that. I know, I'm sorry. So, like we just had it. That's okay. So I know we have to move about. It's on. Like, I, mean, I know when I get started, it's just like pouring out. Okay. No, it's amazing. We we might have to do a part two on this. <laughs> okay. Well, there was one member that I met very early on, and that was Gary Cherry. And he was from Oklahoma. He and he came with these poets. Christopher Cross was one of them. Uh, these these four gay guys came from Oklahoma, uh, and they all had long hair, and they were all like poets and writers. And Gary Cherry was like this. He was into the magic as well, and he was like a pan figure. He tripped all over town. He knew everyone, and he would connect people like, "Oh, you need to meet such and so," and he knew Scrumbly. So I went back to, I would periodically go back to New York to refresh the bank account uh, by taking a, a brick of weed to New York, wrapping it in a t-shirt, sticking it in a suitcase and flying to New York for $50. And then uh, staying at my brother's apartment and sell lids. And then I'd go back. So that would be the point when I would something would happen, there would be a turnover and I would move somewhere else. So 
anyway, at this point, um, Gary Cherry introduced me to Nikki and Harlow and they were living around the corner where I was living on the Presidio and they were living around the corner and meeting Nikki was a real pivotal experience um, because I had at this point gotten so saturated with THC that I had like a, a psychotic experience and I couldn't talk. So I didn't talk for months because there was too much brain activity. Um, so when I met Nikki, it was almost like this great wordless bonding and Nikki would dress you. He was such a visionary and he, he had made costumes. He was, he came from new Orleans. He'd made costumes for showgirls and, and for strippers. And he took so much acid and he went to Seattle and he and Harlow came from Seattle. So Harlow had been a plaster caster and she was all tripped out in furs and lots of sequins. Uh, but then he started dressing me. So then the three of us lived together on in this tacky little apartment on Lyon Street. However, Gary Cherry, you know, all of them, it's in the groupies movie, actually. You should see the groupies movie because I saw it a long time. I saw it like, I don't know. I was probably in my early 20s. So well, the, the San Francisco part takes place in 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 our Lion Street apartment, and wow. all the people that are in there, are, you know, this was pre coquettes um, because Harlow was there, and they were, you know, they they knew about Harlow, but so everybody was there for the shoot. So there was an earthquake, and we had to leave this apartment. It was condemned, and Gary Cherry knew Scrumbly, so he brought us over there, and that was. That was the real beginning because then Scrumbly was a musician. Link lived there. He was a writer. Um, Harlow was a performer. I was a painter. John Flowers was a painter. Nikki was a designer. Everybody that lived in the house at the time were artists. It was really like an artist's. It was just a house. I mean, we were living communally, yes, but there was a lot of houses in San Francisco that were not formal. You know, there were a lot of formal communes that would be about this, that, or the other thing. But, but this is also kind people of like lived in houses in the Victorians. Yeah. It's I kind mean, of like the Wilton Hilton with the screamers or exactly. like, like, house well, like everybody that was doing right. something, you know, musicians, writers, artists, people. Well, that like, was that way because we were used to living that way. That's how we lived in San Francisco. That's how uh, they lived in Seattle. You know, that's that's was how we were living. And so we transported that to L.A., you know, yeah. to get a yeah. place cheap and big enough so it could accommodate a lot of people. That was always the point. So yeah. um, so we were all living in, in this house and it was at Bush and Baker. It was a big old Victorian and um, hibiscus. He, he had you know, he was such a theater person. Um, his family he got his whole family into uh, theater and they were just like a normal family, but he was such, he had so much theater in his blood, like so born in a trunk that, that he reincarnated his whole family into actors and performers. And Ellen Stewart brought them to New York from Florida and to help her start La Mama. So Hibiscus, when he was a teenager, was in, um, all those things that I was seeing, all the plays like like the John Vaccaro plays and Jack Smith films. And so he was from that scene that, that I had experienced when I was in New York. So Gary Cherry knew him and brought him to the house, He, you know, because he wanted to start a theater group. And uh, he was living at Cauliflower, which was a really formal, very restrictive commune and he, so he wanted to get out of there and so Gary Cherry brought him to the house and it was a big deal when he came he was all in white robes you know he was so theatrical oh my god he was high drama to the max he came like a vision he had you know more robes than Isadora Duncan and big wreath on his head and a big all these flowers and he presented himself to us and everybody we were just all yeah <laughs> that is fabulous so he sat down at the piano and he played music. And so we just cleared a space and he moved in right away and started the concept of the theater group immediately. I mean, he moved in like in the fall of uh, 69. 69. So this yeah. was like 
actual Cockett's house? This was the first Cockett's house. Right. Yeah. It became the first Cockett's house. Yeah. So uh, he got this album, you know, it was like a Victorian velvet album. And he had all these uh, lots of pictures and, and glitter and glue and all that. And he put it out on the kitchen table, which was the Mecca anyway. And so he was doing this in the kitchen and everybody was drawn to it. And he would say, what fantasy, what's your fantasy that we're going to do in this theater group? He just presented the whole idea and started creating it within this, this book. And everybody was just said, yeah, let's do it. None of, nobody was a performer per se. Um, Scrumbly was a musician. I mean, People came at it from different mediums, but we were doing our own thing uh, individually. And it was when when Hibiscus started uh, the theater group that really galvanized the energy for us. Um, so it was like how long after you guys kind of started was um, when was when you started doing the palace? A couple or, of months. So and they, those were, were like mostly improvised or had had like oh yeah absolutely you know, there was a theme we worked for the first year totally out of this book that we created he you know all of us put stuff into the book so the first year was themes um, but the the group was called the Angels of Light Free Theater that was his vision and um, he found a theater but the whole thing fell through you know it was a very that's another story. And it's in the book. <laughs> but um, but he was Wait, the I'm going to say the name of the book now. And, and even though it'll be in the episode description for all you guys. But you guys need to see this book. Because everything that Fayette is talking about, she put in this book, which is just amazing. It's called The Coquettes, Acid Drag, and Sexual Anarchy. Um, so The Coquettes ran from 1969 to 1972. Right. And it was everything that she's talking about stream of consciousness and through her memory is probably the way it played out. And I'm so insanely jealous that, <laughs> I, I, you know, that I, I, I'm like 10 or 12 years behind you age wise, because I would have been all over that shit like a cheap tramps dress. <laughs> yeah, you would have, too, man. It was great. Honestly, it was everything that you thought it was. But you you reimagined it and did it anyway. I mean, look what you did in L.A. My God, look at you. Are you kidding me? You didn't miss a beat. Oh. <laughs> Seriously, I was reading. I was reading stuff. About, I mean, you know, like I grew up like on a college campus in the 60s. And there was like my first concert was when I was like nine. It was the, the Grateful Dead with the merry pranksters there at wesleyan with someone doing a fucking oh. lotus position on top of the further bus for like four hours and stuff but right i mean you lived this i, w I was nine that was also the first time i smoked pot and drank wine wow. but, yeah <laughs> well you got in there absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. I would have, I would have been the child living in your house, and I was. <laughs> and believe me, well, the youngest person we had was fourteen. Her name was Tina. Yeah, and she was beautiful too, and she was uh, very sexified at fourteen. And she would bring home the rock stars from the concert halls. Uh, Iggy Pop was her boyfriend for a while, and yeah, uh, wait, me too. <laughs> yeah, see, oh. He loves the gals that are, he loves the freaky gals. You know, he does, right? Yeah. Yeah, sure. So you would be, I mean, the house was a constant parade of freaks. It was fabulous. And everybody was wildly dressed and the place was hugely decorated. It was my ideal living situation. Believe me, I have tried to reincarnate that place everywhere I have lived. And now, uh, you know, nobody wants to decorate. Everybody, you know, all these millennials want a white space. And I just don't even, I can't even believe what, what they're missing. Yeah, yeah. I, well, yeah, yeah. They, they might also be missing the psychedelics that we had, which were far right. better in those days, even though I haven't, I haven't taken, okay. Note to the listeners, no, no episode of this podcast is complete without talking about acid. We have to take a little break right now, but we're going to get right back on into this.
Okay, so um, so well, um, but so any so okay, so we're all at Bush and Baker. We're all working on this vision, and uh, Hibiscus wanted to do it on New Year's Eve, nineteen seventy, so it could be the new theater vision for the new decade. He was bound and determined, but um, we didn't have a theater, so. Sebastian and hibiscus if something he he would he would fall he would dissolve into a veil of tears and weep if something went wrong it was quite something uh, and then he would be laughing hysterically he took a lot of acid when he went from George Harris III to hibiscus that was a major major acid leak uh, which we all did I mean the whole group the core group that was at Bush and Baker were all major acid heads. So it wasn't, the Cockettes was not a, you know, a bridge too far. The, the Cockettes was like the next step for us, really. And so Sebastian, the cinephile, had the Nocturnal Dream Show at the Palace Theater, which was the very first midnight movie. Uh, and all the hippies would take over uh, the palace at midnight, you would stand there waiting outside and the little Chinese families would come out and then you would be able to go in and take over the theater. And he would show all kinds of films, like from Betty Boop to John Waters, you know, it would go on uh, starting at midnight until like four in the morning, every weekend, uh, all weekend. So when you left the Fillmore or Winterland, you would head to North Beach and continue your drug high in a theater that was a total safe space and watch movies and do whatever. So um, we asked Sebastian Link, knew Sebastian. So he went to him and asked him if we could do something on stage and he would have live entertainment on the, on the special holidays or whatever. So he said, yeah, sure, whatever you wanna do. So we, um, there was another friend of Hibiscus who was such a brilliant artist. His name was Ralif, and he was living at Cauliflower. He didn't, he was shy. He was into, you know, self, whatever. He, he didn't come into the house. He didn't move into the house. He wasn't on stage at that time, but we all knew him. And he was an incredible wordsmith. So we had one of the, we had different ideas and themes in the book. So one of the ideas that Ralif came up with was uh, a chorus line satire of the Rockettes called the Cockettes. And it was just a little tiny thing. You know, it wasn't like a big idea. It was just a little funny thing. So, but we couldn't do a big show. So Hibiscus said, well, let's run on stage. Uh, do the cockettes and run off and it'll be a flash of what's to come. And so, you know, we got crazy dressed up. I mean, I wore like every skirt I owned and put the rest of them on the guys. You know, everybody was totally dressed. And we took uh, the bus or whatever. We got to the theater and um, Link went to Sebastian and to, uh, to tell him, you know, he said, well, what should I say? And so Link said, well, well, uh, tell him, Tell him uh, we're going to do the cockettes. And so Sebastian says over the loudspeaker, and now the cockettes. And so we, we go on stage and Hibiscus had a little record player that you wind up, a 78 record player. And he had this little scratchy 78 of a French can-can. So he puts it on the stage and we're standing there and, you know, he sets it up and I don't know how he fucking plugged it in, but. The record starts and we all start flapping around and kicking crazy and doing whatever. And the record stops and the audience just went berserk. None of us expected that. Uh, everybody stood like a deer in the headlights and Hibiscus was next to me and I turned to him and he went, whoop, and he played the record over again because he knew what to do. He was a theater person. So he had perfect instincts. So he played the record again we did it again more crazy and the audience rushed the stage and Sebastian put on honky tonk women and everybody, they were coming up on stage. Everybody was taking their clothes off and it was like a, a wham party on New Year's Eve. It, it just really, really turned around the decade. And um, 
So meanwhile, everybody was saying the cockettes and, and Hibiscus was saying, no, no, we're the Angels of Light Free Theater. And they go, no, you're the cockettes, man. So yeah, the default name took over because nobody could stop saying it. You know, it was so good. So then we started performing at the palace. You know, we just started doing shows and uh, they were extremely loose at first. But I mean, we had a very... I mean, we had a learning curve like anybody, but it was the titles of some of the shows. Oh, God. Yes. Well, the first show was Paste on Paste. And then there was um, Fairy Tale Extravaganza. But then later the names got more crazy, like Tinsel Tarts in a Hot Coma. And (laughs) uh, we had Pearls Over Shanghai. We had uh, the sci-fi show was Journey to the Center of Uranus. Um, (laughs) What else? Yeah, I mean, it just got better and better, really. Uh, and we were so experimental. We we had absolutely not an ounce of care about the result. And there was no director either. It was it was formed in such a way that it was perfect in in process and development because we were all free to do whatever we wanted. And hibiscus had such an incredible energy and he, he would make sure the energy was really high on stage at any moment in time. Uh, and so it was really when we would bring our A game, you know, to the stage and then you would interact. It was just interacting with each other and playing off of each other. And I mean, we had a most fabulous time. It was the greatest experience ever. Um, and it was very cathartic actually, because by the end of a show, I would feel like I was a different person <laughs> because of the experience. You know, like, without the drugs. <laughs> it was tremendous. It was like a tremendous experience. And the audience loved it. Absolutely. So everyone started dressing up and uh, it just got huge. So by about the fourth show, I think we, there was, uh, we did a show called Hollywood Babylon, which was like the Kenneth Anger Hollywood scene. and. Um, Sebastian said that show, because we got a Klieg light, you know, it was all about Hollywood. So we had a Klieg light. And one of the, uh, Peter Mitten, who was a musician, uh, he had an old car, like one of these old Packards. So everybody stood around the corner in front of, you know, this is North Beach. So in front of some Chinese restaurant and the car would pick up like two or three people, drive around to the front of the palace. And then you'd get out like the red carpet uh, with the Klieg light. And then the car would take off and go pick up some more people and then come around and then get out, you know, so it went like that. And people crammed the theater. Sebastian said that the place sold out. You couldn't get anyone in there. And these people, he said, one guy had his face pressed up against the glass and a $50 note, pushing a $50 note against the window. And he thought this is going to be a hit. (laughs) That's when he knew that, that we were going to take off, but we all knew it before that. But so the first year was the most magical because it was so experimental and it was so high in, in development and in uh, ideas because everybody knew what the energy was, even though we didn't really verbalize it. We, we talked all the way, all the time about what we were going to put into it, but the very core, it, everyone interpreted it in their own personal way. So it just became so dense with uh, like a very cubistic um, style of adventure. You know, it was really like our big adventure and it was totally surreal and cubistic and, um, and funny. You know, we were, we, we wanted it to be funny and we didn't, we were not into, we were anti-theater. We were anti-everything as far as any rules were concerned. You know, there was no border, no rules, no can't do, nothing like that. So by the second year, we had hit the press. You know, Herb Kane talked about it in his column. And the owner, the manager of the theater wouldn't put the word cockettes on the, on the marquee. But then Herb Kane wrote about the show in the Chronicle. And so then the manager, he, you know, he, he had to, right? He just if it was in the newspaper, then he could put it on the marquee. So okay, then let's take you know. a little break now before we get into this.
<laughs> so the shows became what we were about completely. And it became such a hit in San Francisco that, that it changed the look. It changed the drag of the city because we were so eclectic with it. There was people, people were dressing in mythic, like a mythic beast or a, you know, a, a beautiful goddess or something like that. But we mixed it up so much that it was not at all about a particular era or like a singular idea. It was very, very dense with ideas and eclectic. And so that started filtering into the city. And well, also the, the, the thing, thing that, that, that struck, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but the thing That's that okay. struck me about it is when you see all those old pictures of the cockettes with like full hippie beards and like insane, like, um, you know, divine John Waters looking eyeshadow and dresses and combat boots and stuff like that. I mean, this looks like what's going on in like, you know, with drag right now after, oh. you know, like filtering off there. It looks like it looks postmodern. And back then, I mean, it. I can't even imagine what it appeared like to people back then. But this is exactly what what like, you know, the title of your book is about, and everybody, if you're interested in any of this history of drag or San Francisco or, or costume or whatever, you should see this book. It's an incredible coffee table book, but it's it seriously makes anything going on today in drag harks right back to that. And some of it might've been through osmosis, some of it might've been because people knew about the cockettes, but I mean, it's so like, it's it's beyond like the pronouns them. Do you know what are they and them? I mean, well, yeah. Like I mean, it was very. We were the fringe of the fringe. I mean, the the hippies. There was a lot of straight hippies. You know, they were like moms and pops, but they were hippies, and a lot of them lived in the country. Um, but the ones that lived in the city still, you know, they didn't dress outrageously. So we really. Uh, created a bend in the road as far as the drag is concerned. And it, it remained on the fringe until David Weissman and Bill Weber made the documentary in 2002. And uh, David Weissman thought it was going to be a big hit. And, you know, it premiered at, at Sundance and everybody loved it at Sundance. And what a party that was. And uh, he thought it was going to be like the next Rocky Horror Picture Show, which had been influenced by the cockettes. Totally. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah. Exactly. I mean, that was like Frankenfurter, Tim Curry. Yeah. No, we influenced a lot of things, but nobody knew the source, what the source was uh, until the doc came out. But, you know, I said to to David, the the imagery is really very dense and people aren't going to really get it. Uh, it's going to percolate. You know, it, it did have to percolate into the culture, into... Um, more ideas about gender identity, more ideas about vintage and you know, the, the road of transformation that we took to get to where we ended up is happening now. That same road of transformation is occurring now in real time. We just did it in a flash forward acid trip of three years, but it's taken 50 years for people to really understand what the imagery, what the ideas, uh, how to regard yourself in its many kaleidoscope forms and understand all that. Understand the psychic terrain that is much more complicated and more uh, more fabulous, for God's sakes, and express it. You know, so people are not afraid to express that now. But um, as you well know, I mean, the trajectory of the counterculture went well into the 80s. Uh, and then it stopped. Yeah, there were several things that, that killed it. One of them was the AIDS crisis, but also uh, the artists that were involved in creating the counterculture, uh, the industry, the entertainment industry and advertising started to buy off the artists in the mid late exactly. 80s. Exactly. Yeah. The I mean, money, I, yeah, I, the money came in. Right. I even think that like punk rock, like the seventies punk and up into the, Oh, like, it's absolutely part it, of the counterculture. That, that was like the last, the last bastion before. Oh, any definitely. Counter yeah. The counterculture goes from the beatniks to the punks and everything yeah. in between. It's, it's one common thread. Until, yeah. you know, the money 
is what killed it. Killed the yes. authenticity. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which is really sad. So now we're in like this moment of rehash, which is great for us and for me because, you know, I can, yeah, I mean, it's really good. But uh, I haven't seen anything really new since then. Well, the, the other thing that kind of scares me about, well, maybe scare is a strong word, but it's it's so amazing to me that there's an internet and so many social media platforms and some people don't even understand the lineage of all of this, you know, like they don't, like you can talk to people that are in, into um, drag or art or something and, and they barely know who the cockettes are are or were if they did or like some like people don't even know mute like they'll say they don't know like a certain song whether it happened in the 40s or the 50s or the 80s and when all you have to do is google it now i mean i know we sound like two fucking old biddies back in my day you have to it's listen to google goddamn the google well, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do the book was to, because first of all, there was over 2,000 fabulous photos of us. I mean, all the great photographers, I mean, the Rolling Stone, Annie Leibovitz, um, all the Rolling Stone photographers, plus Bud Lee was a Time Life photographer. There was, when we were in New York, there was a New York Times photographer. There was so much material out there, including my own photography, that I really, you know, I wanted to put it in a book so that people could see what the source was. And how, also, long, how long did it take you to make the book? How long were you working on it? Well, I started thinking about it uh, uh, five years ago. And, but it took time to actually get to the publishing situation. And then it took a year to actually, I was the art director. So it took a year to get it going. I mean, it it's on Feral House and unfortunately, yeah, uh, Adam, Adam, died. Adam died, which put a big delay on the book and made lots of problems and issues anyway. So it came out even later than then the pub date was supposed to be August 2019 and it dragged on and it came out right, on. No back into the pandemic. <laughs> it just, yeah, it was like, yeah, it was a little too much for little me uh, as far as the, you know, anxious moments. But it, so it came out right into the pandemic and I didn't get to do the fabulous live events I had planned and two exhibitions. But uh, those are going to happen as soon as we get to leave the house. Thank you. Yeah. Okay. Let's take one little break and then we got, um, we'll come right back and listen, listen to some more of this in incredibly encompassing story of Fayette's. <laughs> well, for though you think I'm your angel from above, um, I'm just a jaded lady and you're a fool in love. <laughs> So where should we go now? Should we, I mean, let, let's, let's do little tidbits of um, other stuff. Like, like, well, we can talk about the WizKids because yeah, uh, but, when yeah. we came back to New York, we did about four other shows in 72. Was uh, this when Tomato was already, in, was he in the, in the, um, in the WizKids, this was post cockettes or, or in the Tomato started, well, Tomato is from Southern California. So Tomato, um, I'm going to just tell everyone, this is the lead singer of like the LA's most famous punk rock band that was like seriously under recorded. Like you guys probably know the Screamers logo, but you probably haven't really heard of them. They were 
All I can say is they were the atomic bomb. They were fat man and big boy rolled into one. Uh, I'm so sorry that people these days can't experience what their performances were like. But Tomato was the lead singer of that, often in a straight jacket, often in some kind of insane drag. <laughs> oh, he was a consummate performer. He was riveting when he was on stage uh, and off stage too. Um, yeah. yeah, I was obsessed with glorious person. First time I saw Tomato and Gear. Um, was at the Whiskey A Go Go. I can't even remember who was playing. I was sitting in the balcony with um, Randy Kay, who did lobotomy with me, and with Joan Jett. And we were just sort of sitting there with our feet up on the rail, waiting for the next band to come on. And we saw Tomata and Tommy Guerra from the Screamers. And um, we were just like, what? I, it felt like aliens had just dropped in because it looked more perfect than any punk rock picture we'd ever seen. Posted right. stamp sized in in like Enemy or Melody Maker, like the English, the English punk magazines. But they were there in real life, and they were both of them. Tomato and Gear were standing with their heads all tilted, weird and crazy. And I remember Tomato was wearing like a shark skin coat that had like a big wooden coat hanger shoved into the back down his oh, neck. I remember that. Oh, I remember that. Yeah, yeah. I loved hearing that wearing and, a jacket with a coat hanger in it. And, oh, yeah. And Joan and Randy and I seriously, just without even talking, got up and walked down the stairs of the whiskey balcony and just went up to Tomato and Gear. And we were just sort of standing there staring at them. And I kept thinking, I should say, take me to your leader. But these are the leaders. Like, <laughs> but and they just both turned around and looked at us and they didn't even know who Joan was because the runaways weren't, you know, like they and. I think maybe their album had just come out or it was just a, you know, it you know, it wasn't like how you think of Joan Jett now. We were all just teenagers, but they turned around and they looked so bizarre and, and they were so nice. And that, that was how I, I know. <laughs> um, right. when well, I, tomato, tomato started in Coquette shows, but I didn't really know him then because, you know, the early shows were so mad that it was such madness on stage and people would jump on stage uh, and anyone could. So uh, Scrumley remembers him and he was David Harrigan. Uh, he was two shows, but I didn't meet him then. Then he went to Seattle and created the Kids, and um, they came back, you know, there were groups in the country that were the freaks and there was the John Waters group in New in Baltimore. There was the ridiculous theater people in New York and the WizKids in Seattle. And yeah. whenever they traveled or came to San Francisco, they would come as a group, you know, and we would meet them at the airport. It was like a very big deal. So when we came, this was the summer of 71 before we went to New York and the whiz kids were coming to town and it was a big deal. And we were, we were about to do uh, pearls over Shanghai and uh, they brought, they had a video artist that nobody had. And it was Randy. Black Randy. Randy? Black Randy was the video artist. He was just Randy. Wait, for the whiz kids? Young, for the yeah. kids? I know, oh, I'm yeah. just saying black black Randy so so the audience knows this you know black Randy yeah. of black Randy at, uh, and the metro, and the metro squad. squad right yeah from from yeah. danger house records which right. was, I'm a loner with a boner and I got a telephone and trouble at the cup which trouble was about the like the big drag cafe on Hollywood Boulevard okay that, I didn't know that black Randy was with them I, I mean I knew yes. that they knew each other but I didn't know it was from the whiz kids this is insanity black Randy Randy was um, the first video artist, he was very, very early in making videos and he had a great big camera. And so he videoed a lot of them, a lot of their oh shows. God. They did shows every week at uh, this old Victorian building, gorgeous building in Seattle called the Smith Tower, had a basement bar in the basement. They had a theater on the, on the floor level that was burlesque vaudeville strippers. And then in the basement, this like Italian mob guy ran a bar, and, <laughs> right? And one of the whiz kids who sat in sheets, he went in there, he walked in there, he saw the bar and it had like a, a little stage. It was like a nightclub and a really old cabaret nightclub. And he, he said, can we do shows here? What do you think? I mean, we were forever looking for theaters. That was like what you did. Um, and the guy said, yeah. And, and so Sats 
satin sheets. We'll call them sats. He said, I'll, I'll be the bartender and, and, uh, you can have the bar take and we'll take the door, you know? So they did, it was called the sub room. And so they did shows every weekend at the sub room. I mean, we only did shows once a month, but they were, they did it every weekend and they lived in houses on Capitol Hill and their houses had names like one house was lavender shadows and the other one was savage gardenias and you know house of leather and this kind of thing so they there was you know scrumbly announced <laughs> by this time we were in the third cockette house which was uh, uh on the panhandle on oak street and it was gorgeous it had all these beautiful built-ins it was a beautiful victorian flat and it had been the Big Brother and the Holding Company flat before, you know, when they left, we moved in. Uh, and so they were coming there. It, it was probably August of 71. Um, and they, they were going to come to the house, you know, and it was a big deal. And um, the night before was the very first Coyote Ball. And it was at the Veterans Hall. You know what the Coyote Ball? Do you know what that yeah. is? Okay. Yeah. Wait, tell it to everybody. The, the it's the whores ball yeah and yeah it was put on by the the group coyote was sex workers in town what, what did and, it stand for i can't remember it stood for something it did it was an anagram this yeah i can't remember either but um it was the very first you know sex workers group uh that that really promoted in a feminist that's, way, that's the freedom right. of yeah. women to do whatever the fuck they want, you know, so they were, it was strippers and all kinds of people that were performers and prostitutes around town, sex workers and whatever. And it, um, so this was the first coyote ball. And so Patty Cakes and I said, we have to go to this. So we went and I got so smashed. So I got so loaded and I got home really late. And in the front room of uh, Oak Street, there was like a, a window seat. And I just crashed on the window seat. And so all of a sudden in the morning, all this group comes tromping up the stairs. And, you know, I put a pillow over my head. Oh, my God, I had a big hangover. And I thought, I can't face these people, Jesus. So I got up uh, off the window seat, and I started down the hall. And just before where my room was, was the kitchen off to my left. And uh, I glanced into the kitchen as I went by. And there was one person sitting, facing the door, sitting on the table. And he looked at me and I looked at him and it was like somebody went, whack! You know, it was like an electric shock went through me. And I kept on walking and I just thought, oh my God, what was that? And that was tomato. That was how I met tomato. It was wow. really like, like such a cosmic blast. So, you know, then I, I took a nap or whatever, went to sleep. But then he and I, you know, totally fell in love and had a big affair. And um, we went on the, our first date <laughs> was the Ken Russell movie, the, uh, the, the Devils. Oh, my God. <laughs> that's so good. Oh yeah, Catholic school. We should we should wrap this part of this episode okay. up right here because um now like when we're getting into the whole punk rock part and the whiz kids and CBGBs and all of that, I think. So that, you think that should be part two? Yes, that'll be part two. So you guys okay. stay tuned because we we are making we are making um Fayette's life into a serial. <laughs> serial <laughs> <laughs> mom like john waters serial okay. mom that's right so this this will be continued so you've been listening to the devil's music with me pleasant gayman and this is my amazing guest fayette hauser who as i said in the beginning has been in every countercultural movement from the beatniks to post-punk and we will continue this episode very soon
The Devil's Music is written and hosted by Pleasant Gaiman. Produced by Aaron Alden. All sound design by Jerry Danielson of Busy Signal Studios. And of course, is part of the Pantheon Podcast Network. Find all of our shows at pantheonpodcasts.com. Our social presence is at Pantheon Podcasts on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found wherever you get great music. Please pick up these important and fantastic tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.